Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Today's guest name is Dr. Sherry Walling. This is episode 67, and Sherry is on the show today to talk to us about what it's like to be inside the head of an entrepreneur. We as entrepreneurs have a lot going on upstairs in between the six inches between our ears, and Dr. Walling has a ton of credentials to help explain what do we have going on inside of our brains. She is a clinical licensed psychologist. She has a podcast called the Zen Founder Podcast. She has a ridiculous amount of credentials and educational experience. She was a licensed professor for three years before she jumped into being an entrepreneur herself and has just going to be coming out with a book called The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Their Shit Together. And Sherry's on the show today to really describe to us as entrepreneurs, what is the balance between life, work, our identity as who we are, and how do we have this relationship with our business and the passion that we have in our business. She even drops the stat that we as entrepreneurs look at the logo of our company and have the same chemical reaction in our brains as we do when we look at our children. So I think this podcast episode is an absolutely must listen to. She's got a lot of great insights. Hopefully you'll see a little bit of insights into who you are and how you interact with your business. And she has got a lot of practical advice on how to keep a balance between all the things that we do as entrepreneurs. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoy this episode with Sherry. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. Sherry, how are you doing today? I am doing so well, Ryan. It's nice talking with you. Yes, I'm really uh, looking forward to your conversation. Um, I saw you speak at the Rhodium community uh, at the Rhodium weekend event in Vegas, and it was a great opening uh, intro to an awesome weekend. But before we kind of dive into some of your background expertise, can you can you give our, the listeners a little bit of a rundown of your education and almost a little bit how you got into the world you are today? Yeah. Um, I'm like ridiculously overeducated. <laughs> so um, I have a bachelor's degree in psychology, um, a master's degree in theology, another master's degree in psychology, and a PhD in clinical psychology. Um, so I've been going to school for a long time. Glad to be done with that. And I now spend my days uh, talking with entrepreneurs, business owners, founders, folk of that sort about their mental health and kind of how to balance the challenges of running a business with the challenges of um, managing your anxiety or managing your relationships and figuring out how to be a good human in the world and still get things done. So um, I love what I get to do. And I got into it sort of through a couple of routes, but... um, Professionally, I have always worked with people who have very high intensity jobs. So people in the military, physicians, uh, first responders, that's kind of the folks that I have trained with and worked with. And it's the kind of psychology that I have practiced. But I'm also married to a serial entrepreneur who has done several startups and, you know, been a consultant, sort of been around the startup tech space for 17 years. And I've been on the sidelines of that. So I keep thinking, wow, the people you work with and are friends with have really high intensity jobs. And those, um, 
those worlds collided a couple of years ago when um, the kind of string of people that we knew of or knew who either had really significant battles with suicidal thoughts or ultimately lost their lives to suicide, who were founders, who were in the entrepreneur space. And uh, I think both my husband, Rob, and I had the sense of like, we don't want this to happen. <laughs> Obviously, nobody wants it to happen. But um it kind of felt like, hey, maybe I can help a little bit with that. So made the transition from a traditional psychologist to this sort of strange entrepreneur slash psychologist slash consultant role <laughs> that I is now my job. That's awesome. And, and so you've got a great set of clientele to work with because, I mean, we are all batshit crazy. <laughs> so I think, you know, it's, you get such a, an awesome background. So how, and you even mentioned that you were a professor too. So, I mean, you were kind of in the, the, the normal traditional route with all the education that you got. And how, was there a specific triggering event with your friends or your livelihood that said, okay, I need to kind of go onto this mission. And how did you translate your education that you had been, you know, formalizing in the classroom into the world where there is not a whole lot of guidelines? Um, so yes, I, I worked as a tenure track professor for three years and I did, did research fellowships at Yale University School of Medicine and Boston University School of Medicine. So I really, really was pursuing this kind of academic track, but the closer I, or the more that I did it, the more years that I, I spent doing it, the more I realized I really wasn't as happy as I wanted to be, uh, largely because I felt like there were a lot of constraints to my time and my resources that I wanted to just have the freedom to choose for myself. So that realization sort of came to me right around the time, um, I guess it was 2013, that um, Aaron Schwartz took his life. Um, and he's the founder of Reddit and you know has an interesting story in, in his own right. But I actually came home from uh, from the university and found Rob, my husband, like crying in our office. And, you know, he's an engineer, like he's a computer guy, like that doesn't happen a lot. Mm -hmm. So I was like, what you like, what happened? Like who died? And he's like, Aaron Schwartz died. And, you know, I, I was like, that sounds like, who is Aaron Schwartz? Like, I just was very confused about it all, but it, it was really a kind of a catalytic moment for us to, um, have followed the career of someone who had so much promise and potential and to, to have him be lost. And so that was, it was, you know, two months later that I gave my first talk, my first talk on the stage at microconf. And that's sort of the beginning of the story in the sense that that's when I started consulting with founders. At that point, it was on the side and doing more and more speaking. And, and in the last year, it's really become my kind of full-time gig and the thing that I give my days to. Well, and I think there's so much need for, you know, the voice that you have and like the speech that you gave. And, you know, I, I'm just, you know, as you have changed from the academic world into this world, you know, what, how, what is kind of the premise of your speech? Because I mean, I've seen it, but the, you know, the listeners haven't. And, and how, how are you trying to spread your voice? And what's kind of the premise of all this education that you got? And kind of what are the problems that you're seeing? And I think you're kind of the, the topics you, you've addressed kind of are addressing those problems. But can you kind of shed some light on that? Yeah. I think like point one is being an entrepreneur is really hard. Like going out on your own, being responsible for your own livelihood. That's hard, unusual, and it's hard. <laughs> and that's kind of the starting place. 
<laughs> so um, I generally spend the first like third of my talk like talking about all the ways that it's hard and all of the bad things that can happen and all of the stresses and strains that entrepreneurs experience. And then I think my my mission, so to speak, is to really use what I know from my psychological training to try to help bolster resilience in entrepreneurs by helping them feel equipped to prevent some of the bad outcomes um, by just knowing a little bit more about what's an important investment in terms of their own personal well-being and mental health. Sometimes it's things as simple as like sleeping appropriately. Mm -hmm. Other things are more nuanced. Other strategies I like to share are more nuanced. But I think my goal is to kind of raise awareness like being a founder is hard. Being an entrepreneur is hard. There's some mental health risks that go along with it. And here's what to do about it. Here's how to protect yourself and be as proactive as you can, sort of knowing that you're going into this tough experience. So have you, what is the, I, I, I can't recall where I found it or I've heard it, but it's like, you know, as far as like the, the brainwave activity or whatever that entrepreneurs are like, you know, what, two degrees away from being totally sociopaths or something like that. Where <laughs> it's, I don't know exactly what it is, but you know, there, there's so many of these emotional challenges and the, the level of risk that we're comfortable with. And you've kind of got these different strengths that you've identified, um, in entrepreneurs, but they also come with these major challenges. Um, because I think we all struggle with it, like that we're so ingrained in the building of this baby, this creative artwork, because it's a reflection of us and being able to separate the business and the, the and who you are. Mm -hmm. and you've kind of it, it, maybe it would be a good idea to kind of just jump in. Is it, it's the four, right? You get the four different strengths and then uh, there's like a, a different side of those. And I think they all blend together as entrepreneurs and being aware of those is the first kind of part of identifying how to fix it. Yeah, I um, often talk about like the values that drive entrepreneurship and, uh, you know, those are a little bit different for everyone, of course, but I think like for me, for Rob and our family, um, we talk and think a lot about ingenuity, uh, meaning it's driven by like autonomy, ingenuity, um, adventure, freedom, these values that sort of help us decide how we're going to spend our days. And they're great. Like they, they sound so lofty and, and I think they are powerful values. Like take freedom, for example, many of us are driven by freedom to want to decide how we use our brains and how we use our time and what, what we want to choose to give our life energy to. And we want the freedom to decide and we want the freedom to decide how we work and when we work. But there's there's like a shadow side of that or there's a downside of that that we don't often talk about. And I think we think about these lofty entrepreneurial values, but the downside of them can be this anxiety or isolation, the constant risk of failure. Those are the things that are always in the backdrop. So I want to talk about like the the great things about this life path, but then also be honest about the liabilities that you invite into your life when you live a life that's based around those kinds of values, those kinds of choices. Well, and, and it's so it's so crazy too, because like you think about the adventure, the the risk taking, all like all the entrepreneurs that I know or that you, I mean, we spent you know two days with a bunch of them in Vegas, mm -hmm. and, and the creativity of just really yourself, you're 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 being yourself, you're trying to reach your full potential constantly, and the the crazy risks that you're willing to take in order to do that and mm -hmm. understanding the difference between this business that is an entity and you and separating those two is crazy. And, the, and 
the, like you said, the risks that we're taking on in order to be able to express ourselves is, I mean, there's like, there's a, a huge amounts of downfall. So maybe you can kind of allude or kind of get into what are the things that you're seeing from, you know, whether it was Andrew or any of these individuals that are struggling, how, like, where does it come out? And what are the, some of the things that they're doing or not doing that, that result in that? I, honestly, I think one of the most dangerous parts of being an entrepreneur is a sense of loneliness. And Sometimes I use that word and people's eyes like glaze over a little bit because I think most people who are successful don't see themselves as lonely. But I think inherent to the entrepreneurial life is a certain amount of isolation in that you are the one who cares the most, like your business lives in your brain. And sure, you can have partners, you can have, you know, a great spouse who supports you. But ultimately, like you live and die on your own mental capacity to get things done um, and to solve problems. And that is, I think, a pretty, like, sort of a deep existential level, like a pretty lonely road. Well, because, yeah, you don't know, I mean, yeah, how do you describe to other people all the different things you're juggling in your head at the same time? Yeah. And how do you... How do you really let people in? I think because it is a kind of a unique life and job experience, it's easy for entrepreneurs to say, I can only connect with other entrepreneurs or other people don't get me. Like my friends that I went to college with, they don't get me anymore. And I think absolutely there's probably some truth to that. But I also think that the more we sort of specialize ourselves or, or isolate ourselves, like the more we risk... Yeah, just feeling disconnected from the larger human experience. So I was going to say, so, and I totally agree because I know when you were having your breakout and we were all, you know, there's a handful of guys and gals sitting there and that we were talking about exactly what you were talking about, which is how do you, you know, so you're isolating yourself, but you're fully submerged in your business and like how, because that, especially the entrepreneurs that, um, or some of the listeners that I work with where they've been doing it for decades so they mm-hmm. literally, their identities are completely intertwined with who and what their business is. How mm-hmm. do you, can how do you help, like in a healthy manner, reach out, whether it's create relationships or hobbies or things that are outside of that? I mean, how do you even start, I guess, is a good, maybe, I don't know if that's too big of a question, but. <laughs> well, I do think on one hand, it's, it's, it's just important to know and name how deeply entwined you are with your business. So um, there was a really interesting study that was published in this journal called Brain Mapping that um, looked at how what's happening neurologically in entrepreneurs' brains when they think about their company. So they use like functional MRI machines, fMRI machines, and they compared what happened when a founder or an entrepreneur looked at his logo, for example, and how his brain reacted compared to what he experienced when he looked at a photo of his own child. And um, turns out, no surprise, like entrepreneurs really do feel about their businesses very similarly to the way they feel about their children on a, on a brain level. And what that means when we break it down is that there are parts of the brain that are where we suspend critical assessment, where we stop um, trying to poke holes in or tear apart people that we love, like our children. 
And so we do with our businesses. Like we have these kind of love is blind, these like rose covered glasses when we think about our businesses. And again, it's all well and good. It's just how it is. We can't totally undo that. But we do have to know that we're biased and we do have to know that we are sort of in love with an entity that can't really love us back. And so when we tell the truth about the fact that we do love our businesses, but honestly, they're not very good lovers and they're not very (laughs) reciprocal, I think it frees us up to also um, diversify our holdings a little bit and let there be other things in our lives that we really also decide to love. Really crazy, well said and interest. I mean, I've never heard any actually specific data to back it up, but it doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, it's the study was really clever. <laughs> they um they they did a series of images. It was like logo and then neutral and then photo of a kid and photo of your kid. I mean, they they set yeah. it up super well. It's really well executed. <laughs> but yeah, um, it's enough of a thing out there that someone decided to study it mm-hmm. because. You talk to an entrepreneur long enough and you can sort of see the little the little twinkle in his or her eye that is usually reserved for for your baby. Mm-hmm. So how um, do you diversify your holdings? Because I, I, I've had a few other guests on the show where we're talking about diversifying your passions from yeah. you know, like fully investing into the business. But like, and again, you don't want to leave your baby be or, or your, I mean, again, as an entrepreneur, I think that a lot of people have been, it's a blank canvas. I mean, the people you hire are as a reflection of you, your vendors, your suppliers, like the code or the processes. I mean, everything is a direct reflection of you, but how do you diversify your holdings from that, whether it's a practical way or even a mental way, because I think other than, I mean, I literally had someone that on the show that said, well, it's usually just a horrible triggering event in someone's lives that it puts it into perspective that their, their business is not their baby. So outside of having some tragedy, I mean, what are some ways that you've seen work for people to actually do that? I think there is a decision point. Like it's something that you have to decide to do because you know that it's important, even if you don't feel it. Because the magnetism is always going to be toward the business. But I think it's, you know, invaluably important for adults to have ways to play, like ways that they experience joy. And whether that's, you know, kayaking or whatever your thing is to really cultivate that as something that's important. I also think it's, you know, incredibly important for adults to have things that they believe contribute in meaningful ways to the world. And sometimes that's your business, but sometimes it's a family or, you know, a volunteer opportunity or something that you just decide that you're committed to because it's important to you. So I think First of all, it's deciding that you're going to let your heart be big enough to hold more things than your business and maybe your kids is kind of knowing even academically or intellectually that that's important. And then I think it's asking yourself the questions like what brings me joy and what's meaningful to me? And those are two important questions that I think can help guide you to activities or ways of being in the world that will help you actually follow through and do them. Because if you if they really bring you joy and they're meaningful, then I think it's, you know, it's a little bit easier to spend time doing it than something that feels like a waste of time. Well, have you, have you even seen that like you almost have to try to do that? Because whether it's me at, you know, my stage of the business or the clients that I work with who've been doing it for 30 years, it like you said, you intellectually know what I'll plan tomorrow kind of deal. We're like, yep. okay, like I'd rather work instead of doing some other activity or doing some other things. I mean, like how 
to like stop it. Like, you know, and actually put your feet in the ground to say like, I'm the problem. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like other kinds of behavioral change, it requires decision and usually accountability. And it, 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 you know, one thing is interesting, it's, it's to talk to parents who have recently launched their kids, like whether they're going to college or whether they're, um, you know, getting married or moving on, whatever. They're no longer living in their house anymore. And there are certainly sets of parents who are like, awesome kid, love you, bye, we're going <laughs> golfing. Like, it's yeah. been fun, see you Christmas. Yep. And then there are parents who are like, my life has no meaning. Like I'm wandering around the house, like not sure what I should do with myself. And that kind of kind of empty nest experience is not that different than what it feels like for founders who are either making a transition or who are trying to, again, kind of diversify their holdings to use that term. You want to kind of crisis proof yourself by having multiple things that you care about. And the same is true of parents. I would say that to parents all day and all night, um, just like I would say it to business owners. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. And I think about, um, so the, going back to Rodium Weekend when we were sitting in the, there's 120 people and we have the different breakout sessions and, you know, the growth and exit planning breakout that I did where everybody's so concerned about growing and the small little hacks, which is, it's taking a step back. I mean, it's like, okay, well, how do I, like, how did you put a crisis proof it? which is understanding the difference between you and the business and diversifying your, your hobbies and your habits. It takes actual work to like look up and think about it other than something bad happening. Yeah. I mean, I think that's maybe another downside of the entrepreneurial life is that I think so many of us are just sort of like a train, just following the track full speed ahead that we don't often stop to like ask the bigger questions of our lives. And when we don't do that, when we don't start to think about exit strategy, I mean, it's it's so smart to start a business with some sense of how you might end it, whether that's going to be in 40 years or whether that's going to be in five years. But I think those bigger picture existential questions are harder for us to give priority to or time to when we feel like the to-do list is overwhelming. But I think there's real danger in that. Um, and I know a lot of your business is helping people think about these big questions and how to prepare yourself for big questions and big events. So, uh, you know, I, I totally agree. And I think about um, some of the, you know, the, the actual ways. And I, I was like, love it, love it, love it as you're going through the speech, which is the, the actual physical, practical ways that you can take a, de- take a deep breath. I mean... You're, you were talking about meditation, sleeping and eating. You know, what are some of the things? Because there was a gentleman um, on the show that was Joe Sweeney was talking about, like, you literally just need to take a stop and like literally just sit for five minutes and think about mm-hmm. other things. So maybe kind of give some of the practical things that you advise people to do to actually help train or kind of switch the transition in their head. Um, and then understanding yeah, I think we'll just start there, I guess. Yeah. So I, I, I'll agree with your other guest. like from a, from a scientific slash mental health perspective, there are very few things that are as powerful for us as slow, deep breaths and taking the time out of whatever it is that we're doing to let our body be calm and actually, you know, facilitate that parasympathetic calming nervous system that says I'm okay. So 
four counts in, four counts out, four breaths from the diaphragm. That's a really simple strategy that has a lot of both mental health power and lays the framework for creating an ability to be self-reflective. Because you, before you ask big questions, you have to be calm and you have to be able to set aside urgent and to-do list things in order to divert your attention and focus to something else. So even um, having a discipline where you spend, you have a, a timer on your on your schedule or on your um, Apple Apple Watch that sort of reminds you every so often to stop and breathe and take a break is a great like beginning point. Other simple skills that you can build on to really we're talking about cultivating self-reflection or that's that's the term I would give it is to at the end of each day simply do a, a two-sentence journal entry what brought you joy what brought you life what was a, the high point of your day and what didn't what was draining to you what was unpleasant to you that kind of data helps you assess what parts of my life am I alive in and enjoying and what parts of my life am I not? And, you know, just as a little aside, that was actually what helped me decide to leave my faculty job is that I had like years of that that little two sentence journaling practice every night and over and over and over and over. I saw that all my low points were about this job and all my high points were about other things that I was doing professionally. And there became a time when it was time to say, okay, I need to actually spend more of my time doing the things that I love and less of my time doing the things that sort of suck me dry. So collecting that kind of data or personal metrics might be another way to say it if that sounds more scientific than keeping a journal. (laughs) It's the same thing, but you can call it however you want. And I think like a level three activity. So breathing is sort of level one, reflective journaling or collecting personal metrics might be kind of a level two. Another thing that I have found to be tremendously important is a practice of regular personal retreats where you are unplugging, stepping away from the business for three or four days, twice a year where it's you and a notebook or some colored pencils and your brain. And you just sit and really ask yourself some deep questions about where am I going? What's working? What are my goals? What would I like to change? You know, asking some big hypothetical questions as well as some directional and planning questions. And that has great value in terms of um, thinking about the direction of your life as well as your business. Well, and, and I think it's amazing advice. And, you know, the couple of things, because I'm in the major category deep into your <laughs> type of clientele where I get, and I know the benefits of the mindfulness and the meditation. I still have not made it a habit. I would absolutely, I kick myself for it because I know the actual health benefits behind it. And I, but I get anxiety even thinking about taking 10 minutes. <laughs> You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think there's that paradox where you intellectually know, but you don't take the time to stop. And even if you were to go, I think a lot of the people that I've interviewed or talked to when they just it is, they don't even know what questions to ask about the intrinsic bigger values of who they are, right? Other than chasing revenue, clients, SEO, customers, lists. I mean, they don't even know what questions, like that's all quantifiable. And I don't understand, like they don't understand the, you know, the, what's the right word that I'm thinking of? The qualitative. Thank you. Right. It's like, they don't need, like, what questions do I even ask and how do I go find those? And those questions are not easy to answer. And you are the only person that has the answers or the ability to search for them. So how would you, what kind of questions, how do you even begin that? I do like the high-low question. It's simple, straightforward. It's it's asking it in a little bit of a data-driven way and that you're identifying like one point as high and one point as low. But it is also an emotional quality question. You're, you're listening to 
um, your emotion sensors about how life is feeling. I also, and not to like pitch my own stuff, but I wrote a brief guide to how to do a founder's retreat, which has frankly lists and lists of questions <laughs> because I do think it's hard to get started. And so that's on Gumroad. I can send you the link if that's yeah, of we'll interest to your viewers. Notes. Yeah, but it's, it is hard to get started, but that's, that's really not an excuse not to be, not to be, right. you know, the, the grumpy lady who's going to wave my finger at you. But like, <laughs> we do hard things all the time. That's what it means to be an entrepreneur. Like you start out doing something because there's not a good solution to a problem that you're aware of and you figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I think that once you understand that not asking yourself deep questions about your own goals and your own happiness, that that's a problem. That's mm -hmm. you not being awake to your own life. And that's kind of like functioning with one arm tied behind your back. Like, why wouldn't you want to be sure that you are, you know, an integrated, whole, well, happy person, that you are being who you want to be and living the life that you want. And again, if you're just like head down all the time, getting things done and shipping and shipping and shipping, you're going to be a great entrepreneur, but you might be a miserable person. So, you know, you can pick your poison. It's fine. But like, yeah, no. I guess part of my mission is to be like, hey, well, you have are making a choice. <laughs> and by the way, you, like, so this, I, I, I'm going to obviously have an intro for you, but the, uh, you got to say what the name of your book is that you're, that's coming out in December. Oh, the, the book is called, um, the entrepreneur's guide to keeping your shit together. <laughs> <laughs> How to run your business without letting it run you. Well, it's so, it's so right too. Cause I mean, like it, it, at some point, what, like, what is it, what's it, what are you doing it for? You know what I mean? Like you, you built yourself your own prison pretty much, whether it's cash flow or whether it's, you know, fame or recognition in your own industry. They're like, what's it all for? And like you said, you just got to like smack yourself in front of it. Like otherwise someone else is going to do it for you. Yep. So oh, go ahead. I, I guess I just want to say too, like we never, we want, never want to plan for bad things to happen. But like bad things do happen. You know, we we have vulnerable bodies, we have vulnerable businesses, we have vulnerable relationships, and we aren't guaranteed all the time that we want on the planet or in our business or whatever. And so I think part of this is being very like brave and heads up about the fact that you don't have all the control. So what you can control is how much you're optimizing for your own meaning and happiness and relationships. But there are a lot of things we can't control. And if we have our eyes open about that, I think it helps us to make um, better decisions. But when we keep our eyes closed and don't pay attention to like what we can't control, then I think we run the risk of sort of deluding ourselves and keep running on the hamster wheel when um, we're not really very like aware. So what, ha what would you say to like one of your clients or to someone where like they finally kind of are like, okay, maybe I don't have control over this. Like, you know, what would be the ways that you would kind of guide them to be either okay with that or you can, well, let's say they've slowly started to have that epiphany. Like, how do you, well, you know, where do you lead them from there? I think knowing you don't have control creates all kinds of opportunities for you to take control. Because my next question is like, what do you want? What, what do you love? What do you value? What's important to you? You get to choose to push into those things. And so, you know, knowing that whatever your time is limited, or I'm not sure how existential we want to be about mm -hmm. this, but like, it's, it's about taking control and choosing how we spend the moments of our lives when we know that that is, when we really feel that that's a very finite resource. 
Mm-hmm. I saw this crazy article. I'll have to see if I can find it and attach it to the show notes. It was like, instead of just thinking we've got endless time, because that's, you know, the prefrontal cortex is literally just telling us that we've got this infinite control over our destiny, which is totally BS. And it, it like, it was this article that was like, you literally only have 30 more winners left. And you're just like, huh. <laughs> and it was like <laughs> X amount of Super Bowls that you have the ability to watch. And you start to kind of back into this and you're going, oh shit, this is not as fine and dandy as I thought versus like, you know, you got 25,000 days or whatever it might be. So it was like a really finite way to look and go, okay, well, how do I want to spend each of those units, whatever you're measuring it in? Yeah. It's like you, it's a challenge of like, that makes me want to go big and be like, I'm going to, I'm going to love the shit out of this winter. Like I'm taking lots of walks. I'm building snowmen. I'm going to sit in front of the fire. Like I'm going to go all in. I'm not going to be passive and I'm not going to be half awake. Mm-hmm. I'm going to love every moment that I can. And I'm also going to choose what's most important to me. So what has it been like? Because Rob has gone through an exit and as you know, you've were you're surrounded by entrepreneurs that have, you know, built and sold and they're more than, you know, serial entrepreneurs. How, what are they doing? That's different from someone that's held their company from, for decades that you've seen, how do they keep their shit together throughout those different transitions? I will be honest. The transitions are very hard. I mean, I think anyone who has sold a company as you have, like, it's sort of this, like, whoa, I thought I knew what that was going to be like. And then it's, it's just harder and more complicated and more emotionally entangled than you think it's going to be. But I also think for many of the entrepreneurs that I've, you know, that I know, and that I've talked with, like, they're really, they're really grateful for the opportunity to, have their company valued well to be able to sell it and then be offered like a second act or mm-hmm. a third act or a fifth act if you're Jason Cohen, like just <laughs> deciding like, I'm going to do something else. Um, it's really emotionally challenging though. So have you noticed a difference on someone that has gone through that transition and then started a second one, how they approach, I mean, you're, you're living with one of them and married to one of them. How, you know, how do they approach the second one in relationship to who they are and how they approach the business. Is there any differences than you would see than the first one? I think that there's a little bit less identity. I think that the identity becomes, I'm an entrepreneur who starts companies, not I am Drip, for example, is the name of of Rob's company. Um, That you're a little bit separated from having your identity so deeply entwined in that particular company. I'd like to see the brain scans of those folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'd be, Honestly, yeah. Um, John Warlow uh, from Built to Sell. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with him or not, but um, he, uh, his program, he calls them uh, craftsmen, which are like photographers, you know, so people that don't, I mean, they just have a hobby, you know, where they're just kind of out doing their deal and they're making some money, um, nothing that's really sellable, transferable. Then there's freedom fighters, which like falls right into the bucket of what a lot of you've talked about where fighting for freedom for their time, their creativity, their people around them. And they refer to themselves as we, the company. And uh-huh. and it's more about us and this is, you know, the company. And then there's, which I think he said is like 80% or something like that. And then there's the mountain climbers, which are VC funded and like they're serial entrepreneurs and it's all about them and they have identified as an entrepreneur, not as the company. So it's mm-hmm. interesting kind of like in the demographics of how, or the, the uh, how they actually w- reference themselves in relationship to the business. 
It's interesting. So I, I've in the last couple of weeks talked both with Clay Collins, who is a former CEO of Lead Pages, um, who acquired Drip, but he and our buddies and we talk every now and then, and and uh, Rand Fishkin, who is a CEO, was the CEO of Moz. So both of them have recently stepped down as CEO, and both of them are now starting new ventures. Just like I mean, like the the body wasn't even cold yet, you know, like (laughs) literally Clay stepped down one day and like the next week he was spinning up his next thing. (laughs) And so I think that that serial entrepreneurial spirit is its own, its own, you know, monster (laughs) experience. I'm just not trying to think of a neutral word. (laughs) Um, and they're definitely unique psychological challenges that go along with it. But, um, but I think there's a level of detachment to the company, but attachment to the process or attachment to the adrenaline, the experience of starting something that that shifts when you're talking about, um, you know, multiple exits and buying and selling things. Yeah, no, I I, I agree, and it's it, well, it's also like you said, deleveraging, so that way you're not caught in a bind and you've got all your chips in one basket like that as you're constantly doubling down. I mean, it's because it, then it doesn't become enjoyable because of the risk that you mm-hmm. got going on in there. It, you know, if if you were to think about, you know, giving advice to an entrepreneur that's, you know, been in their business for a long time and trying to work through a transition, you know, yeah. what are some of the things that you'd, you'd leave the listeners with on how to start that process mentally? I think you have to acknowledge that it's an emotionally laden conversation and almost like on one piece of paper, write down all of your feelings about it things you're afraid of, um, things that you'll miss, like all of the emotion stuff and sort of have that on one piece of paper. And then on another piece of paper, spend time thinking about what you want to do with your time and like almost beginning to dream or be creative again. It's really hard to do both in tandem. When you were talking about making a big transition, I mean, I hope this doesn't sound strange, but like I've walked founders through like how to have a funeral for a company that didn't survive. And we it wasn't yeah. cheesy. Like we yeah. meant it. Like it was like, this is what I loved about this. Like this is what I'll miss about this company. <laughs> you know, we did the whole thing. There was a service. There was, there were mementos, there were tokens. And we, it's like, you say goodbye to this thing that you've loved for however long you've loved it. And you have to do the emotional processing. You you can't make good decisions when you are acting out of emotion that you haven't named. It's not mm-hmm. that emotion makes you make bad decisions. It means that you can't follow the script without knowing what the script is. Mm-hmm. You have to name it and do that separately from any kind of like planning and logistics that those can happen at the same time, but need to happen somewhat separately. I think that's a fantastic, I mean, like, yeah, that's fantastic advice. I mean, it, naming it is the only way to address it. Yeah. And all the ways that it's hard and sad and -hmm. also exciting. It's all this bucket of feelings and that's, (laughs) that's that's okay. That's why you just sort of, that's why they call you and hire you because you're (laughs) the one that takes the blender full of emotions and figures out why they're all there. (laughs) We'll just put put one out and hang it up to dry over there and we'll just push it all out for you. And as we wrap up, why don't you give uh, the listeners a little bit of a rundown and I'll uh, attach uh, Zen Founders podcast link and everything in the show notes um, because you address, you've got a hundred, almost 150 episodes of this and you've been going through and been working through for a few years. So uh, what are some of the things that you talk about? And because if they're, if the listeners are enjoying this, um, you've, you've got lots of doses of this um, on your podcast. 
Yeah, we talk about sort of work, family, and life. So sometimes we talk about ways to work better. So the podcast is co-hosted by myself and my husband, Rob. So we both have our own approaches to work, work life, work schedules, those kinds of things. Then we talk a lot about family because that's what our shared venture is together is how do you communicate well when you've got two people who are running two businesses and have kids and, you know, are trying to enjoy life, but also have a lot of responsibilities. And I think entrepreneurship is a, is a interesting opportunity to really have your family involved in your business in some unique ways. So we talk a lot about that. We think a lot about that. And then of course, you know, I'm a mental health professional. So the third piece of our podcast is that we, we think a lot about, um, wellness and life kinds of topics. So one of the things that we've done on the podcast that I really have loved and is a nice like entree point into the podcast is we did a couple of rounds of what we call the founder origin stories where I've interviewed, you know, really successful, interesting founders about their early life experiences. So sort of some classic psychology, like how did, how did you become this successful, you know, how did you get to be Dan Martel? How did you get to be Andrew Warner? How did you get to be Chris Lemma? How did you get to be Erica Douglas? And, um, let people tell their early life stories. So if people are curious, that's that those can be that's good awesome. episodes to begin with. Yeah, it's a good way to start the process of just thinking about it, just starting mm-hmm. to think about it. I love it. All right, Sherry, if there's anything you want to leave the listeners with um, or highlight before we take off, is there anything you want to leave them with? Oh, I just, you know, I, um, I love helping founders think through the emotional, psychological, relational sides of their work. And um, I'm happy to be a resource if, if people in, that are listening want to talk about those things. And I love what you do as well in terms of um, really helping people ask big, important questions about the direction of their businesses. And so it's been a pleasure to be on the podcast. And oh, I absolutely had a blast. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Sherry. I saw a lot of myself in the story she was talking about. As you could probably tell, I was uh, having some internal reflections going on. And hopefully you were able to see some of yourself and understanding where your mental spot is in relationship to your business and the things that you've created. Because I, I do believe that entrepreneurs are artists and we're a such all our business and who we hire and everything is such a reflection of who we are that being able to separate that is crazy challenging. I mean, the experiences that I went through from us selling our business and the clients that we work with on that's one of the, what she's talking about is one of the most challenging things because you can build an entire financial plan or exit plan in a matter of hours, but it's about what's important. What's our relationship to the business? How do we, how long do we want to be there? What about our family? That's the hardest stuff. So if I had a few takeaways from my interview with Sherry is one is, and the most important one I think is she said that you just have to sit down and do it. And like, what is it that's important to you? And it, what is it that, that, what are you getting out of the business as far as emotional satisfaction, community, passion, purpose, and then is there a way to divest into different hobbies and you have to work at it? You have to literally try because sometimes the other hobbies aren't as fun as the business, but the business, there's risk emotionally of having all of your eggs in that basket, not having community and hobbies and families and friends outside of that and knowing that you can do other things and they will be eventually fun and you can slowly transition to other things. And I really think the second takeaway that was kind of a weird one, but I really saw some she how that she talked about literally having a funeral for your baby for your business and knowing that you literally have to mourn for it and i think about 
whatever it is that you need to, to physically or practically do to be at peace with what is it that you want to do next in life and what is it that fulfills you However, you have to grieve it that it worked, it didn't work, you, you'd sold it to someone, you might, whatever it is, moving on mentally and transitioning is, is crazy important. And I think the third takeaway that I have, and it's something that I've personally been struggling with, is taking the time to take a deep breath. Take the time to meditate, go to the gym, do whatever it takes so you can have the ability, the actual physical ability to self-reflect and take yourself outside of the day-to-day doing of the endorphins, whether you're you know, firefighting and solving problems, but having some sort of way to take a step back and see how the world looks and your relationships with your business and your family look outside of the actual shitstorm that you're probably in the middle of. So I hope you enjoyed the interview with Sherry. She's got a ton of great knowledge and her podcast is amazing. So if you want more of this, and she's got a lot of different topics on the Zen Founder podcast. So hope you enjoyed it. Until next week. Have a good one.